0: Well, hey, we are going to continue in our series, uh, Kingdom of Grace, which we are moving through, uh, we are moving through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, and we're trying to look at the Sermon on the Mount through the lens of the Gospel. That everything that Jesus says must be connected to what Jesus did, why Jesus came. That the Gospel is not a ladder where we climb climb our way to God's approval, but the gospel is God come down to us. It's really down to earth. It's much earthier than we think. God come to meet us in our brokenness. And so how do we interpret then Jesus' commands? Uh, for what he gives us in the Sermon on the Mount is essentially the ethics of his kingdom. But I think it's much more than that. I truly believe that the Sermon on the Mount isn't meant to be just kind of this sort of ethereal, i you know, idealistic concept toward a utopian society but it is, it is a representation of the very heart and nature of God who has come down to us in our inability to actually live up to that nature and is inviting us to surrender to him so that he can live out that reality in and through our lives. And the challenge for us to deal with it is that when you remove the gospel, the Sermon on the Mount immediately becomes a tedium that will lead you to a desperation and anxiety rather than leading you back to the foot of the cross, which is what it's meant to do. And so uh, last week we, be- we looked at the similitudes, two statements that Jesus proclaims over his followers, which is the beginning of the church. And it's two statements that he proclaims over us as his church. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Now, he's not saying these are ideals that you should work toward. He says this is what you are. So the call upon our lives is learning to become what we already are. This is the great challenge. We don't work toward victory. We work from it. And I I felt... Um, I, I had to rush because I spent most of my time on salt last week, and I just, I, I've, I'm really fascinated with the simplistic language that often carries incredible layers of meaning. And a word like light is something that is worth considering in greater depth because it's a word that is utilized throughout Scripture to describe God. It's, there's a battle between light and darkness. The triune God is a God of light. If I can get the first, the first slide, what I want us to consider today is this, the God of light and the church of reflection. Now I'm not talking about reflection as in contemplative practices. I'm talking about us reflecting like the song we just sang in the blessed light in which we are like the moon. We are reflectors of the true light. We are, we are merely, um, we're secondary light. We have no light source of our own. It is, we are called to be representatives or manifest, reflect the person of Jesus to a lost world. And so I thought it would be really cool to consider kind of in depth, this idea that God is light and what that means for us as the church. And as we think about this statement that Jesus made, you are the light of the world. What do you say? You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light, so shine before men. Let your light, which means let Jesus shine through you, uh, shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. In other words, the church's responsibility is to be a signpost that points people to the God who is light. Now the good news is that we're told that the world um, has been blinded by the work of the evil one and it doesn't matter how much light shines if someone's blind. And this shows that every move we take toward God, God is already previous. He has already moved before us because Jesus says no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. I love that as an evangelistic person is the recognition that it's not my responsibility to save and my fundamental belief is that if Jesus is lifted up, he will draw all people to himself. So our call as witnesses is not to get people to sign on the dotted line. Remember what I said, people aren't projects. And when the church treats humanity like a project, it's not surprising that the world is turned off by our dehumanizing them um, in our attempts to get them out of hell and into heaven so that we can get kudos with God. That's not how it works. People are image bearers of God. And that image, though it is marred in every arena, leaving us incapable of reaching for God in our own strength. God, in his graciousness, has chosen you and I. This is the reality of election. He has chosen us that through us he might reach others. (laughs) This is the beauty of the gospel. And so I want us to think about this statement. Let's just take an overarching look at the person of God, the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Trinity is a complicated a complicated um, uh, reality for us, but everything in the gospel hinges upon our belief in it. It cannot be explained. If you've, ever, if you've ever heard people try to explain the Trinity, it's like, I don't know, like you're in a Sunday school class, and you're like, you know, God's like an egg. No, he's not. That's actually, it's just inappropriate. Like, he's not, he's not an egg. He's like water. You know, there's three parts, but it's one. No, he's not. He's a community within himself. (laughs) He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So one of the chief things it means to be made in the image of God means that we are made for relationship. And the primary outcome of sin is what? The destruction of relationship in three directions. We are not triune uh, in, in in the core. I mean, we're not a community within ourselves. Some people act like they're a community within themselves. But that's not the truth of what we are. When people fragment into multiple personalities or those, that's the outcome of the fall. But that is not a a singular gathered community that creates a unique oneness that cannot be lost. This is something that is so important for us to understand. So here's the thing that, that I think is really, really crucial as we consider the triune God. It says that this is the message in 1 John 1, 5, that we have heard from Him and proclaim to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. What is one of the most fundamental aspects of Christianity that we must cling to with absolute tenacity? That God is what? That He's good. That no matter how difficult the days, no matter what struggles or tribulations that we are going through, there is still something fundamentally, even people that do not have a robust faith, that they don't even maybe believe in Jesus, often the view is that somehow we want, there's something in the human heart that believes, most people believe in God. They just don't, they maybe not, aren't able to define that. And it's true that in America, as we are moving we're, I mean, Portland's already a fully post-Christian city, and the rest of the U.S. is following quickly. The, the stats are pretty staggering. I mean, we're, we're down to, uh, we're, we're down to approximately 70% claim to be Christians, but there's probably only about 8% in America that are regularly attending church, giving a part of a community that believe in orthodox vision of the gospel. It's a very small percentage, and it continues to shrink. But let me remind you, this, is, this should not create despair for it only takes a little bit of light to dispel a whole room of darkness. And God is, the, the church has gone through many times, if you've ever read G.K. Chesterton's uh, The Everlasting Man, he talks about um, multiple points in human history where it seemed like the church was gonna be snuffed out. But God is sovereign in nothing, the gates of hell shall not prevail against her, we are told. And we have to believe that. God is good, but he is light and there is no darkness in him at all, which is one of the reasons that I get so weirded out when theologians in their attempts to create an airtight box around concepts of God ultimately make him responsible for sin. If you have a deterministic worldview of a meticulous providence where everything that happens, happens because God determined it to do so, I would agree with Chesterton when he said to his atheist friends, you're essentially, you guys are, you guys are as bad as the most hardline determinist within the, within the faith that basically leaves no room. Listen, I don't believe that we are free to reach God in our strength. We are not. Uh, and I, and I love Luther, <laughs> but there have been Followers that have taken the bondage of the will to such extremes that it has left us as nothing more than the actions of a God who has already determined our existence, and ultimately that puts God in a place. It's an attempt to to create a logical, a logical grid for how we think about Christianity. But there are things that move outside of logic and move into the realm of mystery. And let me just give you one example before we dig into this. For those that you're like, hey, it doesn't say the word Trinity in the Bible. Um, and why is it necessary? There was actually, I had a conversation with a, with a gentleman, young man at of Hope who questioned the, the validity of the Trinity um, based upon some readings he had done and some speakers that have been pushing back against that. Uh, we, we know that, that uh, the Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses uh, diminish the deity of Christ and turn him into a created being. Uh, and, and so this is, a common, this is a common question. I can't explain it, therefore it must not be true, right? Well, let me give you an example of something that our entire modern world is built upon. It's called quantum mechanics. Quantum mechanics violates so many of our natural laws. It messes with time. That's why there's all these movies about the multiverse. Because it's one of the theories of like, because quantum mechanics literally does not make sense, nobody understands it, and yet it is the very basis. It's funny, you know, you see those signs around town that are essentially anti-Christian. I believe in science. I believe in water. What, why does it say that? Um, I, you know, I, I believe, you know, it's like, it's all the like hot topics. um, And, 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 in and the, I believe in science is basically a punch it, like, at people of faith. But the whole world is functioning on faith in that one of the primary systems that creates modernity, which is the computer, your iPhone is, exists because even though they don't know how quantum mechanics works, they know its outcome is always true. How is that different? And for us who believe in a God whom we can't see, but we have seen the outcome to be true. I can't prove that God is triune, but I know this, that the moment you dismantle the Trinity, you dismantle the entire Bible. Because if God is not triune, then we are not made in the image of a relational being. And it actually turns them into something much more cold, much more detached, less like light and more like a cloud of obscurity and darkness. There is mystery, but it is still revealed mystery. Does that make sense? So, it, and you're like, no, it doesn't. Well, that's okay. Revelation 21, 23 through 24. And the city has no need of the sun or moon to shine on it. As, as, as John is given a revelation of that new heavens and new earth, that there is no sun nor moon because it says... The glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 4 through 6 says In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So I want to talk about several facets of what it means to be the light of the world. But first, we've got to consider God Himself, the triune God is light. Let's begin with the glory of the Father. The glory of the Father. In James chapter 1 verse 17, James writes this, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. If you look at Exodus chapter 34, 29 through 30, Moses after coming down um, from the mountain. Remember what he asked of God. God says, what can I give to you, Moses? And he, Moses' one request is, show me your glory. And you're like, oh, that's in the Bible? I thought that was the third day song. You don't, we're in Portland, you don't know that. If I, was, I said that in the South, they'd be like, oh my gosh. <laughs> Moses says, show me your glory. And, and God's, God says, you cannot see my face and live, but I will, I will do this. I will hide you in the cleft of the rock And basically, I'll let you see my backside. Um, And as God passes over, um, he proclaims who he is. And he says, he says, the Lord, the Lord, merciful, gracious, abounding in steadfast love, slow to anger. All these incredible proclamations about his nature and his character. And notice, everything that God reveals about himself in Scripture is directly connected to his relationship with fallen humanity. And the glory of God, it, it... impacts. It's his splendor. In, in Scripture, glory tends to focus on kind of two realities. One is God's attribute. It's his, it refers primarily to his majestic beauty and splendor and the recognition of it by mankind. However, it is also an ethical concept and embraces his holiness, which is why it says in Romans uh, chapter 3, for all have fallen short of what? The glory of God. All have fallen short of the glory of God everybody. we we come up short. We can't climb the ladder to perfection. We can't be, as Jesus said, therefore be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. His splendor, His glory is out of reach for us, but what about His glory come down to us? All have fallen short of the glory of God. No, we're not saved by our works. We are saved by faith. In Jesus Christ, through grace, his love that comes toward us, it's a love without contingency. He, he, on your worst day, he's crazy about you. And I, I think that this is a beautiful thing. When we think of his glory, we, we have to th- think of it in terms of also his presence. Because often in scripture, in fact, in the rabbinic writings, the Old Testament, we, they talk about the Shekinah glory of God. It was literally the manifest presence of God amongst his people. The pillar of fire and the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night God's glory rested when the temple was built his glory filled the temple but the prophet said there will be a day when his glory will fill the whole earth in a way that's separate the psalms already talks about his glory his splendor being seen but his glory now is you and i he doesn't share his glory with others it's always his glory and yet he fills us with himself and we become conduits of that glory We become reflectors of that very presence of Jesus. In other words, the church is meant to reflect the of people who have spent time with him. What a powerful thing. But how does that work? Well, the Trinity begins to help us make sense of that. I love that Moses comes down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets. And what did it say? He came down from the mountain. Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. He was unaware. Notice the focus was not upon himself. Like, check me out. I'm glowing. There's actually Darcy and I are actually watching. Um, it is, there's a universalist theme to it. But it's actually quite charming and sweet. And it's Melissa McCarthy and her husband. It's a show on Netflix. And it's called like God's fool Or something like that, or oh, God's perfect idiot, and it's about this sweet man named Clark who has his crush on Melissa McCarthy's uh, character. And God chooses him uh, to be a conduit of his message, and but he literally glows, he has moments where he just starts glowing, and he's not even aware of it. And people like pass out and it causes all these issues and some people are calling him a charlatan and other people are saying he's a prophet sent by God but he's just like this simple good person and and you know unfortunately that's not the way that glory works on human hearts because all have fallen short of the glory of God and this this show kind of it's like he's been picked because he actually is living up to the standard but I do like the fact that they drew on that idea that There is something supernaturally evident of God's presence upon his life. And there is like a real sweetness that comes out. He takes it very seriously. And we, we're not in a Netflix comedy. We're the actual church of Jesus who is meant to be a reflection of his love. That the world should actually recognize something about his beauty and splendor upon our lives. Now, I like to tell you every week that life is mixture. Even the things that we do in the power of the Spirit is still mixture. Sin is still a part. Even though sin has been forgiven, past, present, and future, sins still wreak havoc in our lives, whether they're forgiven or not. We all know the truth of that. It can be forgiven or something and be haunted by it my whole life. But the fact is, is that that mixture often hides the presence of God, which is here, right now. We just have to learn how to attune our hearts to his presence. This is why Tozer brilliantly wrote In the Pursuit of God, a book that is for sure considered a classic um, of Christian writing, at least from the 20th century. But I think the reason it resonated so much is because it spoke to, it spoke to the essence of the gospel, which is not about arriving or sinning less, it's about knowing the living God and loving more. And he says God is perpetually speaking into his universe. The problem is is we have not learned to attune our hearts and minds to hear his still voice. There are a lot of voices clamoring for our affections, aren't there? A lot of distractions out there. But God's glory is his presence and it should be reflected through us. But how does that happen? If we've fallen short of the glory of God, if we're told that it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God in Hebrews, for our God is a consuming fire, I think it's really fascinating that the glory of God without relationship with God would be hell. Consume us. No man can be in the presence of God and live. You cannot see my face and live, and yet we have beheld His glory in what the Son. The revelation of the Son. This is where the Trinity becomes very crucial to our theology. The revelation of the Son, what did Jesus say? John chapter 8, verses 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. How blasphemous does that sound? If God of glory, the one God, says, I share my glory with no one, and yet Jesus says, Father, I am ready to have my glory restored to me, the glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world uh, in John 17. Note this, Jesus says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. For isn't that what Philip asked of him in the upper room? Lord, show us the Father and it will be sufficient for us. He says, Philip, have I been with you so long that still you do not know me? There's that language, relational language. Still you do not know me. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Jesus was crucified because of his identification with God in a way that was considered blasphemous. He made himself one with God. Isn't that a fascinating reality? So I like to say that Jesus pushes us into a corner. You cannot call Jesus a great religious teacher. Of the great world religions, and I'm not talking about the small fringe cults where someone, you know, declares that they are God in the flesh, that have, you know, a hundred followers that end up taking their lives or think that he's been sent from aliens. I'm not talking about the fringe groups. I'm talking about the major world religions that most of the world break into. Outside of Christianity, Christianity is the only major world religion in which Its founder is also its focus. Its founder is actually its source of salvation. Muhammad never claimed to be the source of salvation for Islam. Muslims believe Muhammad was a prophet sent by Allah to bring the truth of God to the world. Jesus said, I am it. I am the message because I'm also the messenger. (laughs) That, the only other kinds of religious leaders that do that are crazy fringe groups. So you kind of paint it into a corner. Either Jesus is God or he is laughing in his grave at our willingness to believe something as absurd as the deity of Christ, when he really was just another man like everyone else who died, because his teachings aren't that helpful. All they do to me is make me realize I can't do it. I can't do it. That's the point. And anyone that thinks they can live out the teachings of Christ without Christ, I just finished reading Wise Blood again by Flannery O'Connor. That's the whole point of the book is Hazel Motes is God-haunted and he's this character that is tortured by a belief in God but his absolute refusal to believe in God. And so he decides to start the church of Christ without Christ and him crucified. And he's preaching the church of Christ without him crucified to anyone that will listen. Because like, if there is no Christ and there is no sin and then there is nothing to be forgiven of. But the man is tormented by his sin. That's the joke that Flannery paints is that we've tried to get rid of sin and all we do now, we can't define sin anymore, so we don't even understand why we're so tormented as as human beings because we don't have language to define what's going on. There's cracks in the 13th floor, but we don't realize that those cracks always come from the basement, but we don't even know there is a basement anymore. And Flannery's like, if we don't know what sin is, then how can we tell people they need a savior? That's exactly the point. Satan's great deception is he can't get rid of sin. All he can do is reduce it to meaningless language around, you know, sickness or, uh, you know, choices and preferences. There's, there's, brokenness is being reduced. I just started the new novel by Cormac McCarthy, Greatest American Novelist to Living, he's 90, I'm so grateful, I thought we were not getting another one from him, and he meditates on this greatly through a horrible character who says, I used to be, used to be fun to be kind of a terrible person, but now there's no language, everything that I do that's bad, everyone's created excuses for, it's kind of ruined my purpose in life, essentially is what he says, in very poetic Cormac McCarthy language. It's like evil's not evil anymore, so what am I doing here? Because without evil, the world's not very fun, is essentially his point. And it's kind of true. That's essentially what entertainment sells, but we live in a crazy world, don't we? Where truth is turned upside down in its head. Jesus is the revelation of the Father. The final word, Hebrews 1, for God at various times and various ways has spoken to us through the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us in and through his Son. He has spoken to us in Jesus. In other words, everything that God has to say to us, he has said and continues to say through the living Christ, who is the direct imprint of the holy, glorious God. And so when people ask me, what is God like? I say, what is Jesus like? I am Christological To the extreme. I interpret everything through the lens of Jesus because there is no other name under heaven by which one can be saved. I pray to the Father in the name of Jesus, but it is Jesus that gives the unknowable, unapproachable light of the glorious God, a human face that makes God relatable, human enough to be relatable, and God enough to save. That's the important thing. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 through 9, what does the revelation of the Son mean for us then? Well, what it means is that this God who dwelt in unapproachable light has actually manifested himself to us in and through his Son, that the Creator became a creature to save his creatures. He became a creature without ceasing to be the Creator, which is a fascinating and beautiful mystery. Once again, not penetrable, but it absolutely makes sense for us who have put our faith in Jesus. When I put my faith in Jesus, I couldn't explain to you what atonement was. I still, I spent my whole Christian life meditating and reading every book I can read on the centrality of the cross and what the atonement means. and theologians aren't even in agreement on what is going on fully because it is shrouded in a certain amount of mystery but we all believe the same thing that sit under the orthodox umbrella that Jesus Christ is the son of God who died for sinners like you and I that the father provided the son with a bride but the son had to lay down his life and he did it willingly for the joy that was set before him which is you the revelation of the Son is the is the heart of what it is that we are to be a witness of. Jesus is the light of the world, and he says, "I am the very." Paul says, "I am the very least of the saints." This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. It's a mystery that has now been revealed. Who created all things? The light of the Son is the revelation of God's heart toward a sinful, lost humanity. And we are to be a reflection of that revelation that God is in the business of seeking and saving that which is lost. If the church loses its mission, its evangelistic mission, to be a witness, if we turn the gospel into an us-against-them mentality, which so many churches have done, I've got to protect we got to protect ourselves from the secularization of that, of the world out there. Do we not understand that the greatest enemy the church has ever faced in its history has always come from within? Satan's greatest work is when he uses God's servants as his tools, and he does it all the time because he's a liar, and our egos are still intact, and he gets ministers to fall and people in pews to tear each other apart and churches collapse all the time and we don't trust God and we in the evidence of Satan's work within communities of faith is a is a terrible reality but it doesn't have to be that way if we would learn to become to be what we already are learn to become what we what we are what Jesus has proclaimed of us you're the salt of the earth you're the light of the world Satan wins every time he convinces you that Jesus can have all of you except your money. Satan wins every time he gets you to believe that I can, I can love Jesus, but I don't have to do anything he says. Satan wins every time he convinces us that I love Jesus, but I don't need the church. No, Jesus isn't interested in this or that part of you. As the revelation of the heart of God What he calls of his children is this. Pick up your cross, which is die, and follow me. Follow me in the newness of life. Let go. Without total surrender, our Christianity, it's going to be an absolute toil. The difference between a Christian who isn't totally surrendered and just your regular average Christian pagan, run-of-the-mill pagan, is that the pagans actually still having fun sinning while the unsurrendered Christian is miserable because they know what they're doing is crap. And I think that this is the reality of God calling upon our lives and forgive me I don't generally use slang but it seemed like honestly the only realistic word worth saying in that moment. The revelation of the sun is He is the light of the world, and that light is meant to be reflected in and through us. What about the illumination of the Spirit? Not only is the sun the message, but we are given the illumination of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 9 through 10, and then verse 12. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor heart the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him, these things God has revealed to us, through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. And then in verse 12, now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. The Spirit illuminates Jesus, who is the source of worship, and also the content of the message. Jesus reveals to us what the glory of God is. He shows us who God is, and the Spirit puts a flashlight on Jesus. That's why the Holy Spirit is the shy one in the Trinity. I am leery of movements toward, um, toward a Holy Spirit-focused church because the Holy Spirit doesn't want the focus on himself. The Holy Spirit, Jesus said, comes to point the world to me. The Father said... This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Jesus reveals the father and the spirit shines the flashlight on Jesus. But once again, that only makes sense if they're all one God. One community. Of self-surrendering love to one another. Actually, even if I was to be honest with language. We don't ever see a passage where it says the Father submitted to the Son. Uh, There is distinction of roles even within the Godhead, but there is mutual love and absolute equality, but different roles, which is another aspect of why the Trinity is so important for us to even understand our crazy world in which gender has been tossed out and, and the distinction of roles between men and women is so confused right now. I literally, as I joke, I'm not joking. I, 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 I pulled together, I've been driving around Portland lately and I'm kind of grateful because you know, I miss, Portland isn't weird anymore, it's just sad. It used to be like Carney folk, remember the Carney folk days? like dumpster divers, a lot of BO, like what happened to the good old days, you know? Now it's like this sad, tragic, like hate fest and, and where, you know, Mad Max happened. And I like Mad Max the movie, but I don't like it in my city. And, I, and it's really, it's, it's heartbreaking, but I've seen this new group that have kind of taken the place of the, remember the tall bike crew? Yeah, what happened to those people? They just took their tall bikes and went to, I don't know, Detroit or something. Um, no, But now there's a new group that's taken over. Elves. Not joking. I just, I've seeing gr- groups of elves, like people with prosthetic elf ears, walking around with fre- freckles drawn on their faces. Gr- I've seen f- probably four or five groups in the last two months, grown adults with elf ears. I even put together a slide for my staff. I'm not going to show you. Of pictures of elves in Portland because I don't think they believe me and then I created a poster that just said elves are welcome at door of hope Um, because and and but you know what's sad about it is that I actually found an article several articles The Wall Street Journal did one is that this is all part of this new movement that I refuse to be defined by anything it seems like some kind of weird joke some sort of piece of strange fiction but it's not the fiction is actually in the water of our society and people have drank it and they believe it and now a person can just be whatever it is they want to be and it's justifiable I don't have to be what I am I will be what I want to be and that is the natural order of a world that when people choose to be their own gods the illumination of the spirit is meant to drive us back to Jesus so that we can discover who it is that we are meant to be. The Holy Spirit empowers us, not so he can work signs and wonders through us, and if signs, I'm not a cessationist, I believe that the Spirit is working miracles today, but my focus and emphasis has never been on signs and wonders because there is no greater miracle than the miracle of salvation and people coming alive to the person of Jesus. And I will take the salvation of a soul over the resurrection of the dead any day. Now, I want the resurrection of the dead in time's resurrection. But if I die right now, before Jesus' return, anyone raises me from the dead, they will have hell to pay. Because I would have been with Jesus, and then you called me back so that I would have to die again a more painful death. And that's lame. We never even think about that. It's like, look at Lazarus was raised from the dead. Yeah, but we don't even know how he died the second time. He could have, he could have been murdered. Or had some sort of terrible flesh-eating disease. I don't know. The first time he may have just died in his sleep, he gets called back and is like, sorry buddy, you actually do have to die again. Um, And then you can be with the Lord. That just seems tragic to me. And yet these are the kinds of things that people are chasing with the Spirit. and We don't understand that the Spirit, as a part of the triune God, he's not a force to be wielded. He is someone that is to be surrendered to. Father, Son, and Spirit, one God. And the Spirit points the world to Jesus. He illuminates our minds. He is the teacher, the helper. Which brings me to the witness of the church. The church as light. The spirit is light in the sense that he illuminates the sun. The Son is light in the, in the sense that he is a revelation of the glory of God. And the father is light in the sense that there is no darkness in him. And he is and he is the reflection of that triune God. Notice how the Trinity works together in, in this kind of, in this push and pull, give and take, of surrender it for the purpose of revelation to a lost world. And the church now is called, in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Notice that. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. How does that work? Because Christ has come to live in us by his spirit. So that what people see in us is not just our brokenness. And and this is, I want to address this. Being representatives of Jesus, King Jesus, does not mean that we should pretend to live an ideal that we can't keep. The way that you get yourself out of the way so that Jesus can shine is to be honest about your brokenness and absolutely confident in God's willingness to use you as a conduit in spite of that. I believe that the way forward for the church today, post COVID, is that we have got to be real about our own fundamental brokenness. Our unwillingness to talk about our sin is the reason why pastors fall because we're so busy pretending. I think, I think preachers are notorious for actually losing their souls in their attempts to present to the church a more arrived state than the people listening to them, which is why we end up with the news headlines that there is this duplicity, the person became fragmented under the pressure of presenting to their congregation a a view of themselves that was not actually true. My goal is to be so honest about my brokenness that you can't attack me for anything that I haven't already confessed. If you're like, Josh tried to run over me in his car because he was late, to a meeting, and I was on a bicycle, and he even flipped me off after I, I yelled at him, I, would, I probably will have already told you about it. That's the goal. Some of you are uncomfortable with that. Your pastor shouldn't be different. No, we all should be different. But one of the ways we should be different is to be humble enough to say, I am a mess, but Jesus is good, and he works in and through us in spite of that. That's the beauty of the Gospel. And I think that we, if we're going to break free from what I call the Puritan hangover, which has strangely moved us back toward a legalism that the whole Reformation was meant to free us from, which is, you're not loving Jesus unless you don't smile, which is a horrible caricature of Puritans, and I've benefited greatly. But there is a stereotype, and stereotypes exist because there's always truth in those stereotypes. That's why shows like The Righteous Gemstones hurts, because it's such a too close to home, you know? Have you ever seen, that's why Portlandia hurt. It wasn't funny, that wasn't funny. That was just Portland. They didn't even try to make comedy, they just filmed Portland. And then it turns into a global phenomenon and that's, everybody knew what it was. And I'm like, I don't think it's funny. That's I just get super serious. I don't think that show's funny. <laughs> Those are my friends. Evan was in Portlandia. These are my friends you're laughing at. <laughs> Finally. guidance of Scripture. Our responsibility to be witnesses to Jesus, we have the triune God who has given himself fully to us. Jesus says, whoever loves me and keeps my word we will come to him and make our home within him. I will come and put my spirit within him. I will not, and this is where it gets, where the Trinity becomes such a strange mystery is Jesus uses what I call the vanishing distinction in the upper room discourse. One moment he's talking about himself, and the next moment he's talking about the spirit, and the next moment he's talking about the Father, and it keeps blurring and weaving, and it's like, well, are there three different people? Yes. Is there one God? Yes. How does that work? Yes. And, and, and so the, Jesus says I make my It's good that I go away Because if I, if I didn't go away The Spirit, the Helper would not come to you But when I go the, When the Helper, when the Spirit of Truth comes He will what, Guide you into all truth Bring to remembrance all that I have said to you But we can't bring to remembrance What the Spirit has said <laughs> What Jesus has said If we don't spend time In the letter that God has written you the Bible is a letter of God's love for you. And we must be people of the word. And I don't care how you take it in. Good friend Paul Anderson from Skate Church, he's been listening to the same lame NASB cassette tapes of a man who sounds like he has cotton balls in his mouth. Read the Bible probably for 35 years. And, and I, I think it's so dear to him that he probably in his mind, Paul, like, that is what Jesus is going to sound like <laughs> when I meet him. But it, what's powerful is that he just, he doesn't listen. To, I, always, I always say, I don't trust people that don't like music, except for Paul Anderson, because he has replaced all music listening with one thing an audio Bible. And anyone that's ever worked with him knows exactly what I'm talking about. Dave, is that true? yes it is <laughs> he, he he worked on my house and he listened to that i'm like dude that, that guy's voice is killing me that is not that that should not happen but he's taking in the word and he's doing it in a way that works for him as a man who works with his hands he can just take in the word all day at work put get an audio if you're a runner listen to the bible when you run Start spending time with God and stop looking at it like a long, impossible book. Quit worrying about the 90% that you won't understand and actually just start responding to the 10% you do. Because the Scripture is not, and this is the thing, why I put the Spirit above the Scripture is because the Spirit, the Father, and the Son are the one holy God. And the Scripture points to the living word, Jesus. It is a signpost to Jesus, It is not, there is no life in it if it's not spirit-breathed, and I have met plenty of people that know the Bible inside and out, and they are are dead right in believing that there's power in it, but they don't know Jesus, so it's a dead book in their hands. I've seen it. (laughs) I've talked to cult leaders that are, you know, people in cults that understand the Bible—they know the Bible, but they don't know the Jesus of the Bible. It's a dead book in their hands. I look at Charles Price once said, and I'll leave this in closing: When it comes to the light of the world, the Scripture, as it says here in Psalm 119: 105, "Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light." To my path. This is why we're going to spend time in Psalm 118. We need to be people of the word. I mean, the Bible project was started by Tim Mackey when he was a pastor here at Door of Hope. And, and that's an amazing resource for learning the scriptures. But I, I think that this is something that we have got to move back toward because the scriptures are meant to point us again and again to Jesus. What Charles Price said, he said, listen, if you have the Bible without Jesus, it's essentially like being a, a fan of a particular car and you're in a club with people that all have the manuals to the car but none of them actually own the car. And you get together every week and you're like, turn to chapter 30, let's look at that engine again. <laughs> Has anyone ever seen the engine? They're like, I've never seen the engine but we got a solid diagram right here. And it's, 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 it's even worse, it's like the A&E, you know, um, biography when you have the creepy, you know, middle-aged dude who's an expert on Marilyn Monroe. You're like, are you family? And like, nope. I'm like, why are you on this show? I don't understand. Like, I'm pretty sure this is what we call stalkers, uh, except he's stalking a dead woman, and he knows everything about her, but he's never met her family. He doesn't know her. He just, you know, fell in love with her as a boy and had her poster, and now he's on Annie talking about Marilyn Monroe, talking all about all the stuff he knows about her, but he didn't know her. The Bible is meant to introduce us to the Jesus who is here. The light of the world, our ability to be a church of reflection that is reflecting the sun, requires that we know the one who is shining upon us. That is the purpose of the gospel. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your love for your power, for your grace, for your movement in our lives. And we pray in this time as we enter into worship, as we, as we uh, prepare to come to the table, as we pray for one another, as we give sacrificially, with joyous hearts because we recognize that we are no longer our own. Our ability to be the light of the world means that we are so surrendered to you, who is the source of light, that you are able to shine through us in every arena of our lives. Lord, forgive us for those areas that we refuse to relinquish control. We thank you that you are patient. We thank you that, that Lord, you give us just enough freedom to make a mess of our lives. You said, whoever the Son of Man says free shall be free indeed. May we learn what it means to adjust to a freedom that we do not understand. For the freedom that you give is not freedom from difficulty, but the freedom you free us from the need to be free from the difficulty of life, because we know you're with us. So Jesus, be known, we love you, I pray that for anyone that's came in in darkness today, that your light would overwhelm them and consume them, that they would know your grace, that they are loved, that they would feel the warmth of your presence and the holiness of your touch. And I pray for us as a church that you would burn us clean with your love, that we would truly be a light in these dark days. It's in your name we pray, amen. Hey friends, this is Russ Lacey, one of the pastors here at Door of Hope Southeast. Thanks for listening to this teaching. We always want to encourage you to give to your local church and would never want to supplant that. But if you're a regular listener and would like to help our church as we seek to point people to Jesus and minister here in the city of Portland, we'd welcome your prayers and financial support. Just head over to doorofhopepdx.org and click Give from the menu bar. May God bless you.